Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Hark. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Season 1 of the TV version of Building the Future is now streaming online at buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Richard Harris. He's the owner of the Harris Consulting Group. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. You've been well recognized as a, you know, a top sales leader and an inspiring leader and as well as a sales trainer and an advisor and you're doing so many things. Um, I think what you're doing is really awesome, and I think, um, well, it's really one of the main reasons I wanted you to have on the show, because you have tons of experience, and I think um, the listener can get a lot of really good information um, about kind of what you've been up to, and you can give a lot of good advice, but maybe kind of before we get into everything, let's get to know you mm-hmm. a little bit better and kind of cover where sure. you grew up. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I grew up in Macon, Georgia, okay. about an hour south of Atlanta. If you can visualize the state of Georgia, it is the smack dab middle of the state. Okay. Um, you know, a, a nice medium-sized town of 100,000 people, so wasn't the big city, but, you know, still had a small-town feel. Um, grew up there. My dad was from there. My mom was from Chicago. And uh, I stayed there till I was 18, and then I went to college out west. I had a burning desire to get out of the South and experience something. You know, I grew up in the South in the 70s and 80s. um, And it was still, and and while there are still some struggles going on 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 lots of issues there, there were even more back then. And, uh, you know, I I wanted to see what the world had to offer. I, you know, I just, and I was fortunate enough that, that, you know, wherever I could get into college, I could probably go short of Harvard or, you know, some $100,000 a year school. Sure. So I got into University of Arizona and went to college in Tucson and had a great, you know, five and a half years. I made sure not to let college stand in the way of my education and um, just enjoyed <laughs> myself. Got, got a business degree. And from Arizona, I, I moved to Colorado for about seven or eight years, lived in Denver. And then I moved to, of all places, Cleveland, Ohio okay. with a job, stayed there for a year and then finally landed myself out here in San Francisco. Um so it's been it's been it's been really wonderful for me because it's just given me this great appreciation for all the country has to offer and I can literally say I know the types of places I want to live and I know the kind of place I want to have a family and and those kinds of things. So it's um you know it it's been a lot of fun. So that that's sort of my quick background of of where I came from. No, I I think that's awesome and I'm curious though what made you kind of decide to move to San Francisco? So I was working for um, an alternative newspaper um, company called The New Times out of Phoenix. Okay. They now own Village Voice, um, right. and they own all those sort of cool, hip papers um, in all the major cities. And, you know, literally, you know, I hate to, I'm going to date myself, but before the Internet in the 90s, if you wanted to see what was going on, this was the paper you read. This is where you went to get this information. It was the Internet. Um, and so I worked for them, and they had papers all over the country. Uh, I was working for them in Denver. Uh, They asked me to go to Ohio for a year, which I did, and they knew I wanted to come to San Francisco. So eventually they transferred me to the paper out here in San Francisco um, because I'd always just wanted to to live here. Like I just thought it was a cool city. Um, So that's how I ended up in the Bay Area. 
Okay, very cool. So at what point did you decide to kind of leave the nine to five world and start your own thing? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I didn't. <laughs> okay. It, the decision, like like many people, I think um, the decision was sort of made for me, and you know, the, literally one door closes, another one opens. Um, I was working for this amazing company called Mashery, which is now owned by Tibco. Sure. Um, they were eventually bought. They were actually bought by Intel before they were bought by Tibco. And I had been there and was asked to set up a sales development team. Uh, back in 2011. Uh, and what was very interesting, well, there were lots of interesting things, but one of the first things that was very interesting is I showed up on my first day and they're like, oh, great, you know, we're excited to have you here. By the way, we're going to have you build this team in Boston. Oh. I'm like, Boston? Yeah, nobody mentioned that in the interview. I'm like, um, <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, I can't really move. They're like, oh, don't worry about it. You don't need to move. You can do it here, do it remotely. And so they just gave me this great, amazing experience to build a team remotely of what is now known as SDRs, right? Even that phrase didn't really exist in 2011 and 2012. So I did that for about six months and we eventually needed a a manager on the ground in Boston. We hired one. They then moved me into sales ops. So I was overseeing sales operations in lead gen. Okay. And then Intel came along with their purchase and Intel didn't need another sales ops guy. Sure. So um, Mashery hugged me out the door. I was one of those people that they could sort of look at on the spreadsheet. And a couple months later, you know, they, they, they took care of me, made sure my family was, you know, cared for in a way that I could decide what I wanted to do. I wasn't in a rush. Sure. And literally someone I had met a couple of years ago called and said, hey, can you come help me solve this problem in Austin? And I'm like, Sure. So for a month, I was in Austin commuting back and forth to San Francisco every weekend. Um, okay, and I was just, yeah, I was just like, all right, well, I can do this for a month. That's no big deal, right? I'll, I'll delay sure. the job search. No big deal. They were paying me well. And on my first flight back from Austin on a Friday night, I sat next to this guy. Turns out he's Nick Maida from this company called Gainsight. This was about three or four years ago sure. before Gainsight is as big as it is today. And he and I had such a great conversation that we got shushed by the stewardess twice. Like, you, can you imagine two guys on an airplane getting so excited talking about life and sales and they get shushed twice? Like, that's, that's hilarious. You know, exactly. And so I literally had two clients, you know, each paying me for a month engagement, you know, without even doing anything. I was using a Yahoo email address. I had no website. I had nothing. <laughs> that's and awesome. And so it was great. And so... Literally, I, I looked at my wife. I said, let's take a little bit of money of this. Let's put it in a website. Let's you know, create some validation and see what we can do with it. And, and sure enough, I, I did. And, and you know, I also had some great people along the way. Um, John Barrows, I don't know if you've ever spoken with him. But, I haven't um, spoke, but he, I know who he is. Yeah, he's awesome. So he was, a, he was a mentor of mine. I learned a lot from him. And I called him and I said, what do you think, John? He's like, Richard, go for it. Like, you know, so you try it out for three months and nothing happens. Big sure. deal. At least you went for it. And it just happened. Like, like I said, I wasn't looking to be a consultant. I never walked into my life going, this will be great. Um, and now I'm having the most fun I've ever had in my entire career. So that's, so that's the long story, but that's the real story to it. So. Sure. No, I, I think that's awesome. And I think that's kind of when you really truly find a passion is when you kind of fall into something and just love it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes the passion, you know, and I've always, you know, it's funny because I've always liked teaching. People always ask me as a manager when they were hiring for management, 
what did you like about management? Why didn't you stay in sales? And I said, because you know what? I just love seeing other people be successful and helping them be successful. Sure. And on top of that, when I work with, with particularly most of the time I'm working with, with people earlier in their sales career, I get to be that sort of one influence that's early in their career that, you know, I'm not going to change their world. I'm not going to change their life, but I'm, you know, I, I hear from people that, you know, you've given me this great foundation. I always remember what you did. I always liked your training. And, and that is what really excites me about management and teaching. I just knew growing up that I was never going to make any money as a teacher. And I always wanted to teach. And so it really sort of found me that this is a way to use that passion that I had internally in a way that, you know, can support me financially that, that, that I can have peace of mind with. And, and by the way, hats off to any teachers who are, or are listening to this or someone who knows a teacher or is related to a teacher, married to a teacher, because that is not an easy gig. And sure. um, clearly, clearly undercompensated in my opinion. No, so, I a hundred percent agree with you. So yeah. like the sales kind of process and just when you say sales, that kind of means a million different things to a million different people in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. So what exactly mm -hmm. kind of does the Harris Consulting Group do and kind of like what's your philosophy behind the whole sales process? Yeah, so, you know, the, everything is getting more and more um, finite's not the word specialized, right? Okay. Like we're hearing this term specialization a lot. And in the corporate world, right, in the, in the IBMs and the fortune world, sales training existed, right? Sales philosophy, sales methodologies, that stuff existed, and you got that training there. Sure. Um, when I was coming along, if you went to a small business, you know, there was no sales training, right? I, I always called it the STFU school of training, right? Get back sure. on the phones. Yep. Um, and, and so for me, I've been able to bring that approach to the startup community, or more importantly, to the small business community where it didn't exist before. Okay. You know, while most of my clients are are startup and SaaS organizations, I have a few sort of hardware or, or hard goods clients. I've got a client who sells gloves. Like literally, if you think about all the kinds of gloves you might need for construction, right? Whether you need some that don't get don't let your fingers get cut, or you sure. need something for underwater, or you need something for to keep your hands cool while you're working in the Texas sun, or something to keep them warm while you're in the cold, but let you do things nimbly, like. Like, I never would have thought of something like that. And I, I went up to their offices in Canada and like, you know, I was blown away by what they do and everything they do is just like everything else in sales. It's just a hard good as opposed to a, a SaaS product. Sure. No, that that's interesting. So what kind of like walk me through kind of how you work with a client from kind of beginning to end? Yeah. So usually, um, if I'm introduced, most of my, you know, I'm so lucky that most of my client is, is, um, is referral based these days, but okay. typically what happens is that, um, I, you know, we schedule a call and I, and I ask them a lot of things about them first. Right. And okay. I even, before we, before we even get into that, I lay a lot of groundwork. I, I, I sort of say, this is my goal of any first call with a client. And I think, and I teach this to salespeople is like, look, the goal of the first call is for us to just get a frame of reference about each other. You learn about me. I'm going to learn about you. Let's have a conversation. Okay. And if at the end of that conversation, we think we're going to go to another conversation, great. Let's do it. But I also tell people too, I ask for the no early and I teach this early to, to sales reps. It's like, hey, if we have this conversation for a half hour and I'm not your guy, please tell me. Like, I will gladly, you know, I don't want to chase you down with emails and phone calls, which they know they're going to get from salespeople. Sure. Um, 
And they all kind of laugh at that. And I also tell them too, that, you know, there are some things I'm very good at teaching in the sales world. There are other things that are not in my wheelhouse. And if they ask me for something I don't do, I refer them to other people in the business, like, you know, the John Barrows of the world or the Trish Bertuzzi's where we all compete with each other, but we also know each other's strengths. Sure. And when something doesn't match what we do, we're all very complimentary to each other uh, because we want that person to be successful, right? We, you know, it's not about, well, I can't solve the problem. So, you know, to heck with them. I hope they don't choose a competitor. It's just the opposite. So, That's interesting, so we actually. Spend, because it's yeah. almost like the startup mentality. And, and that's the one thing, like the more and more I talk to people, the more and more everybody just seems willing to help each other. And I think that's kind of starting to spread into other industries that maybe work with startups, but aren't necessarily like a startup themselves. Have you found that? Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you another solution too, okay. um, or another thought, I should say, not a solution. Yes, it's part of the startup community. But it's a part of this cult, this version of startup, right? It's not from the early 2000s. Sure, you're right. And what I truly, I truly believe, it's the millennial. It's the positive effect of the millennial generation. And I talk about this a lot uh, about the differences between Gen X and millennials, and and really most of the problems between Gen X and millennials is Gen X's problem. It's not the millennials' fault. Like it's not their fault. Okay. You know, and so if you ever talk to, and this is how I explain it. If you ever talk to a Gen X and they complain about a millennial, I just did this the other day. Okay. Um, and, and, and then Gen X, well, you know, they want this and they want that and they want this. And I go, you know, let me ask you a question. I understand you're frustrated by their desires, but your tone of voice that you're using, the sounds, the passion you're giving kind of sounds like you're angry. And they'll go, yeah, yeah, I am. I'm angry at these people because, you know, they, they do more and say, so basically what you're really saying, Gen X person, is that you're angry because they're given opportunities that we weren't given because the internet world didn't exist then. Interesting. Yeah. That's and fair. everybody, everybody does exactly what you said and you go, oh, I never thought about it that way. Because it's, I go, let me ask you this. If you could have had the ability to be trained and coached as much as the millennials in your career or your school or whatever it was, would you have taken it? Yeah. And they're all like, of course, right? And and depends. Well, it's interesting. Most half of the Gen X crew doesn't want to take it. They want to do it on their own anyway. Really? That's just I'm a Gen, yeah. We were lucky kids. You know, I, I came home from school by the age of eleven by myself and fixed myself a sandwich. And so figuring it out on my own was sort of ingratiated at me at a very early age, coming from split parents, which I see a lot in the Gen X space. Sure. Space. Um, so half of them would want it, half of them wouldn't. But again. That's because of the environment we were raised in. Nothing more, right? So anyway, so it goes back to this much deep-seated issue. Like, if you ever talk to people and you, particularly in sales conversations, and you listen to the tone of voice they're speaking at you with, and you try and go, well, that person sounds angry. I wonder what they're angry about. You'll usually recognize that it's not always you, right? Yeah. In sales, we talk to people and they say, well, you know, you get on the phone and this person's really angry about something or they're just not being very open and they're being a little closed. And I, and I say, well, ask them this question. Hey, you know, I understand you're being a little cautious with me. Like I, I get the reputation of a sales guy, but is there something else going on? Did you have a bad experience with a salesperson somewhere along the way? And they'll all say yes. And I hate salespeople and I want this or I don't want to do it. It's like, thank you for sharing. I'll make sure that doesn't happen. And then you can literally see the pressure release out of that person. Interesting. That's actually relax. really good advice. Yeah. 
So anyway, so I'm, I'm sort of going all over the place. No, here, no, I, I like apologize. it. It's good. But, it's good. You know, yeah. So anyway, so so that I'll sort of stop there and let you tell me where you want to go next. No, sure. Well, okay. So you kind of get to know the people a little bit better. You kind of start them off with some kind of general questions just to kind of uh-huh. feel the person out a little bit. But maybe let's step back a second. Like, what's your advice to reaching out to people, you know, that if you're trying to uh, get into an organization, right? But And then you start having mm-hmm. these calls with them. Like, how do you set up those ar- initial calls? I, I get asked that question quite a bit. Right. Yeah, how do you make the cold call not so cold, right? Exactly. So cold. Or do you set it up so, through, like, Twitter or LinkedIn or, you know, that? All other. of the above, right? Sure. So it's all of the above. It's, it's about a level of familiarity that's going to get you that meeting. Sure. Right? That's what gets you the first meeting. So, you know, there's, there's you know, the whole new phase and phrase these days is social selling. Are you doing social selling? And, and in the old school world, right, that was networking, right? Yep. Who, who knows somebody that can introduce me to somebody? I'll go to this cocktail happy hour, whatever it was. That was social selling. Today's social selling is very different. And again, it's, it's a little bit of the psychology of sales. And remember, you know, before I call someone, right, or put them in my cadence for outreach, um, and actually, let's step back. One thing you need to do to set the meeting, is, and in my opinion, is you've got to have a cadence of outreach, meaning so many touches over so many days. Sure, okay. And before I actually reach out with an email or a phone call, I will probably try and do something socially. And you're seeing it now, right? And now, you know, this worked three years ago, but now it doesn't because we're all used to it. You know, the LinkedIn in-mails were great, Right. I used to get a LinkedIn email and I was like, oh, my God, it's like getting mail in my in my home mailbox. Someone sure. wants to talk to me. Right. Someone thinks I'm important. Yep. Well, that's gotten stale. That doesn't work anymore. But you can still use something like that from a familiarity standpoint. And so, you know, it's nothing to think about going following them on Twitter. Right. Mm-hmm. Why do you follow someone on Twitter? One, so that hopefully you can find something that you can comment about. But every time you follow somebody on Twitter, they get an email that says, so-and-so just followed you on Twitter. Sure. Right? You get this notification in the inbox, right? If you ask to connect with someone on LinkedIn, what do they get? They get a notification that someone wants to connect with you. If you like something on Twitter that they posted, they get a notification. So, you know, you can start to surround this person, right? Circle the wagons around them with some social touches. Sure. And try to breed a certain level of familiarity. Then I also think the next most important thing, when you make that first outreach, when you ask to connect with them on Twitter, first of all, you can't use the general, Hey, I'd like to add you to my LinkedIn profile. Rule one, rule two, you can't ask them for a meeting in the first connection. Okay. It's not okay. Right. Because we all know it. We all know it's coming. Sure. Right. So it's no longer a surprise, but you could say something like, Hey, I just joined this group. I see you're in this group too. I'd love to connect with you. Makes Great. Sense. All right. Right. I'd love to share knowledge. Right. Um, I even go so far, particularly when I'm doing it to say, Hey, look, I'm not going to actually try and sell you anything because they see that I'm a consultant, right? They look at my profile. They're probably assuming I'm going to try and sell them some consulting services. So I say to them, I, you know, I'm not going to try and sell you anything. And I don't, right. For me in my world, in my role, I want to connect with more people because the more people I connect with as I write things or tweet things or blog things, my name just gets seen more, right? That's my social selling. And then hopefully in time, they will come back to me when it is time. Or maybe they're going to know somebody I need to know. 
But that's a much longer game, right? That can take two to three months before you even get the first meeting, as opposed to the straight up outbound email, hey, can I help you do this? So that's one approach to it, right, from the social side. Sure. If you're going to email them directly, then it needs to matter, right? It needs to be personal. It needs to have some level of common connection, right? So I never ask for a meeting in a LinkedIn email, and I never ask for a LinkedIn email, uh, a meeting in a LinkedIn invite, right? Okay. Um, but I will ask for a meeting in an, in an email. Makes sense. So if I think it's appropriate. So now if I've told them in my LinkedIn communications I'm not going to sell them, then I'm not, right? I'm going to email them with something that says, hey, thanks for connecting with me last week. Here's a couple of blog posts I wrote. I thought you might like them. And, you know, I don't know if they're going to open them and read them or not. But now I've tried to add value without asking for anything. Yeah, they see fair. I'm just trying to teach them something, right? I'm just, just trying to share, right? And so I'm building a certain level of rapport and trust. So this to me is, is sort of the, you know, the 2016 version of, of outreach. It's going to change by 2018. Sure. It, it has to, right? This is going to, you know. The first time we get the hippo email or the hungry alligator email or whatever, that was funny and it worked. It's three years later, that stuff doesn't work anymore, right? So how do you, you know, do breakup emails and all those kinds of things, which is the other end of the spectrum. But, you know, for now you ride this wave and then you make adjustments as time goes on. Sure. So, okay, so you get the meeting, you set up a call mm -hmm. or, or kind of mm -hmm. whatever. What's... At what point do you actually really kind of start talking about how you can help um, that potential client, whether it's to selling them a product or service? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, so I'm going to answer that question from the aspects of a salesperson selling, not not Richard Harris, right? Sure. Because my world is different. Sure. Um, and, and as I said, I will tell people that I won't try and sell them anything. Right. Um, what? it's a very simple theory. Nobody will ever sell your products or service better for you than your own customers. Right? Sure. There's nothing I could say about my sales training that won't sound a thousand times better. If I say, Oh, the CEO of this company says my training helped them close a six figure deal. Of course. Yeah. Makes right? sense. Right. Okay. So that to me is what I teach, right? That's what I teach in, in terms of how to ask for that first meeting is, you know, provide some level of relevance, some commonality, you're in a group, you went to the same college together, whatever, but then tell them a pain that you solved that you know they're probably experiencing, sure. right? So, for example, you know, you want to make sure that you know your ideal customer profile, meaning what are your common customers look like at the company level and the decision-making level? Sure, right? you need to do your homework, and then. Right? Right, exactly. Do that homework. And then provide in your messaging like, hey, we've helped you know, these two companies solve this problem. Who do I talk to about that at your company? Mm, right? Interesting. You don't ask them for a meeting. You ask them, who should I talk to? Sure. Right? If you ask them, you know, nobody's got time for one more meeting. Fair. But if you, if you hit on a pain point that they know they experience and it's relevant to them and you say, who do I talk to? They're going to say, well, you talk to me, right? Right. I, right. I, you know, they're going to beat their chest. It's me. Um, or they're going to say, you need to talk to so-and-so. So, so that's, a, that's, a, that's a big piece of what I, I teach people how to do is, is do the research, how to surround this person with some social touches, how to take those social touches and, and move them um, 
towards uh, an outbound campaign where you actually start asking for the meeting through phone calls and emails and, and even on Twitter and other social things, as well as, um, you know, what that messaging needs to be based on, you know, the pains that you know they're going to experience. Sure. No, I, I think that's really good advice. Is there is there something that you kind of see sales guys, you know, do all all the time or, or is quite common that's kind of a, a mistake that you kind of have to correct all the time? Yeah. Um, so the first thing is once something works, don't change a thing. Okay. If you've got an email that's working, stick with it till it stops working. Got you. Now, what that doesn't mean though, is that you shouldn't test something against that trend. Okay. Right. Because at some point it's just not going to work anymore. Right. Right. And And then you're scrambling, right? Because you have nothing. Exactly. You're panicking because you haven't tried something different. Got you. So that is, you know, it's one thing to, you know, don't mess with a streak. But on the other hand, you know, sometimes you need to break it to see if you can make it better. Right. right? Um, And the best time to break something is when it's working, not when it's not working. Sure. Right. So for example, so here's a really good example. Let's say uh, you're calling into SaaS, you're you're calling into the, the, um, finance world, right? You're calling into banks, okay. right? So lots of times companies will say, Hey, great. Let's move over to insurance. That's kind of familiar. It's similar ish, right? There's mm-hmm. finance, there's money, whatever. Right. Um, but here's what often happens is you don't let anybody start sending out emails or making cold calls into the insurance industry until they've had a day where they set a meeting with the banking industry. Okay. Because now the pressure's less, right? It's kind of like, you know, when you take, and I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about the SDR space right now. Sure. But, you know, there are days where SDR set one, two, or three appointments in one day. And sometimes it just happens, right? Sure. But what is the attitude and the energy of that person who set two meetings today successfully? They are going to go so confident and so bold into the new vertical that if they fail, it's not that big a deal. Sure. Whereas if you've got another person who's on the bubble or hasn't set an appointment in five days and they want to target a new industry, well, they're going in with desperation. Sure. Right. Their whole energy and mindset is desperation. So again, you know, a salesperson is just about energy and mindset and psychology is any other person, right? This is why the comparison analogies of athletes to salespeople matters because it takes a certain mindset to strike out so many times, right? It takes a certain mindset to fail so much and still get up off the mat and dust yourself off. Right. Yeah, no, totally. You know, we're going to, we're going to go see all these fabulous men and women in the Olympics this summer. um, And, you know, we're not going to see, the years and months and hours of preparation it's taken them to get to this one stage. Totally. Right. And so, you know, that's the piece I'm talking about, right? We got to, we got to support our salespeople, whether it's sales guys or women or, um, um, uh, or SDRs, whatever role they're in, you've got to play the mindset game. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and that's actually really good advice. So, I'm curious then to kind of maybe like maybe cover a little bit more 
of kind of exactly mm-hmm. what services that you provide to, mm-hmm. um, you know, anybody that's looking for, for kind of sales training. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, thank you, and I, and I promise not to sound like I'm plugging myself, but I, I appreciate you asking. No, no, I, I think it's good, right? Because I think people yeah. need to know exactly what you offer, because you mentioned earlier in the show about where you have your strengths, right? And I think it makes mm-hmm. sense to highlight those strengths. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, no, thank you. Um, so probably 80% of my business is, well, let me, let's talk about the 20%. 20% of my business, which is not a lot, is defining the process, right? Okay. Helping define things like ideal customer profile, how big is your target market, um, what does your sales process look like, what does your lead flow look like? Um, not necessarily setting up your CRM system for you, okay. but setting up the process within the system, right? Gotcha. What's the lead flow going to look like? If it's an inbound lead, how does it go into the system? How do you flip it? When do you flip it? You know, what's the definition of a lead? What are the different stages of a lead? What's the definition of a contact or an opportunity? What are the stages of the opportunity? What is the exit criteria for each stage in the opportunity? Meaning you can't go from, you know, discovery to negotiating unless you have these five things done, right? Depending on what they are. So 20% of my business is the operational sales ops stuff. The other 80% of my business is straight up sales training, right? Teaching sales reps how to have meaningful conversations, whether you're an SDR or an AE. And I know this matters and I know that it works because every sales team I talk to has a pipeline full of nothing. They've all got these deals they've held on to too long. They don't want to get rid of them because they're afraid to. They're afraid to move it forward because then they're going to be held accountable by management. And what all that really means is they haven't done a great job discovery. Okay. So on the sales side, we teach them how to earn the right to ask questions. Okay. And, and do, you, do you have any advice on ask, that? Like just maybe elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So, so there's this thing I call the respect contract that, that I talked about earlier in the show about, you know, how I intro a call and sure. you know, yeah, the yeah. goal of the first call is set a call and, hey, if I'm not the right fit, let me know. You know, hey, we're just going to try and find out some stuff by asking each other some questions. Very casual stuff. Well, once I've done that, I've now earned the right to ask questions on anything I want. Now, that doesn't mean I jump in and ask someone immediately what their budget is. Like, sure. that's, that's not smart. Um, but I can start to explore where their challenges are, what their pains are. And more importantly, not what their pains are, but why solving those pains matter to them, both personally and professionally. Sure. If you start with why you're going to get to real answers. And by asking why questions, you're going to establish a deeper rapport. Sales reps are great at getting what questions. Oh, gosh, you know, I've got five SDRs and, you know, we need a tool to help them be more efficient with their, with their emails. Great, buy the tool. Right. Excellent. But if they don't know what to say in those emails, then you just, you know, sorry, but you kind of accelerated the suck, yeah. right? It's just not going to be good. Um, so really teaching them how to earn the right to ask questions, the order to try and ask the questions, but also be fluid enough and listen enough to go, okay, they're asking me about this. That means I should go down this Avenue a little bit. Right. Um, so that's one of the things that, that I, that I teach. 
Um, and, I've, and I've actually just come out with, with a, a sales philosophy called NEAT Selling, N-E-A-T, which really stands for need, which is what sales reps need to focus on. Then teaching them to understand the economic impacts of those needs, right? What is the pain worth to them from a cost or a savings perspective, right? Sure. How is that going to affect them economically? And then A, you know, people used to think A would be authority. Well, it is no longer a single decision person maker right. anymore. It's now consensus buying, right? Everybody makes a decision by committee. So it's no longer about whether or not you have the right authority figure. It's about whether or not you can get access to the authority figure. Sure. Is the person you're talking to going to get you the meeting with a pope? Gotcha. Right? Yep. So it's all about access. And then, of course, the last thing is timeline and how to, how to truly qualify timeline. So N-E-A-T. So it's called neat selling. And then the interesting thing, too, is that even though I've come up with that little catchphrase sure. in today's world, it doesn't necessarily follow that order. Sometimes you may talk about the economics first. Sometimes you may talk about access because the person's going to say, look, I need the solution or, hey, my boss is telling me to look for this. So you have to be flexible as a sales rep to be more fluid than, than, than rigid. Sure. Um, so all the stuff that we teach them sort of floats around this philosophy to drive them to, to solve those, those four compelling pieces. No, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. So you kind of covered this a little bit earlier on, but do you want to maybe elaborate on the types of clients and companies that you work with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, most of the companies I work with are post-series A or B funding. Okay. Um, they are traditionally a SaaS company, okay. uh, in the startup space. Um, and they've got a sales team anywhere from five to 50, uh, just sort of depends on how big the organization is. And then it also depends on what they're trying to accomplish. So some companies, if they've addressed the SDR model, the sales development rep, the, you know, what used to be called the appointment setter, I spend a lot of time with those folks teaching them how to do this, right? Those people typically are a little bit earlier in their career, Got you. possibly their first sales job, teaching them how to do some of this social selling outreach, how to ask the right question to generate um, something that's, that's compelling, not interesting, right? The goal of the SDR is to, is to get someone to respond to them, which means that if someone responds, it means you've said something compelling to them, not something interesting. Interesting's interesting. Hey, that's interesting, but now nah, we're not interested. Sure. If it's compelling, they'll say, yeah, I have that problem. I need to talk to you. And so teaching them how to do that through uh, outreach and cadence and emails and the number of words to use and which words to use and which words not to use and how to talk, how to in, bring in your own customer success stories to, again, help you tell your story better than you can, really focusing on that. The other part of the business, right, on the sales side um, with, the, with these SaaS organizations is really teaching the sales reps the buyer's journey, making them understand that the journey is, is, is built against them, right? We already know this. If you sure. walk into a department store and the sales rep comes up and says, hi, can I help you? What do you say? Yeah, it depends, what would you right? Oh, well. Right. Well, most of the time we say, no, thanks, just look. Yeah, fair. So – Think about it from a cold call perspective, right? Basically, you're a sales rep and you're trying to find a customer. That's, your, that's the first step. Well, the first step of the customer is, is to actually lie to the sales rep. No, I'm just looking. So right, of, right away, the journeys are on two different paths. So teaching them how to make, get everybody on the same page, 
right? Teaching people, whether you're an SDR or an AE doing cold calling, to stop saying, hi, this is Richard. I'm calling from the Harris Consulting Group. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I got you. Right? Yeah. You know, so teaching them those kinds of things. And then further through the process, teaching about better discovery, how to answer a question with a dis- question, how not to show up and throw up during a presentation or during a first call, how to make sure you're listening. Do you actually have a timer that matches how much time they talk versus you talk? Right? Really? Interesting. So, you tell people that. Oh, yeah. Really? Absolutely. Well, think about it. Like, I guess. That makes I, a lot of sense. That's interesting. Well, I never think thought about of it. that, though. How, how, how bad is it if you're in a sales call and you're the customer and the salesperson won't shut yeah, up? Fair. I mean, it's painful. Yeah. Yet, we naturally do this for lots of reasons, um, but it, it's... It's, you know, it's an easy thing to, it's an easy thing to comprehend, I think, as you just said, it's also a lot harder to do in practice. Sure. Um, you know, I, th- I think you've heard me, this is my new line these days, you've heard me say it once or twice today is, okay, I'm going to stop talking now. Uh, no, I, I think that, that's interesting though. So yeah, I never, I never really thought of that. That it makes a lot of sense. And I, I mm-hmm. think that's really good advice for people out yep. there, right? Because you're right. It's it's really hard to listen if you're talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got, you know, the the old adage: you've got two ears and one mouth. Use them in that proportion, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I do a lot of a lot of stuff around that, and then I actually do call coaching. Like I will literally sit on the call quietly with a rep. I have a scorecard. The rep knows. Like there's nothing there's nothing shady about this, right? Sure. We go through training. Then we go, okay, well now based on this training, let's see how they did with the respect contract or asking why questions or did they define next steps at the end of the call? And I create a scorecard that we can measure the rep. Um, and the way the scorecard is built, you can actually measure, you know, once you do two or three reps, you can actually see across the team if everybody's struggling in the same spot, which then tells us, oh, let's go back and reinforce this part again. Oh, that's really good. Right? So that's so that's a lot of the stuff I do, uh, you know, sort of on the on the sales side of things as opposed to the SDR side. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. And and like it sound like you you're, to your point earlier about you love teaching. You you basically are teaching, but it's just not to like a classroom. It's just to you know different sales teams. Right. Exactly. Well, yeah. No. That's 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 really cool. So I'm kind of curious to know. You kind of mentioned that you work with sometimes maybe people that are just starting out. What advice would you give to somebody that's just starting into sales? Learn. Okay. I read. I don't care if you read the Sandler Rules, the Challenger Sale, Trish Bertuzzi's book, the Sales Playbook. Um, just read. Right. Find the blog. There's so much information out there right now. You know, dedicate yourself to, you know, reading one blog post from a thought leader. Um, you know, the John Barrows of the world, Sales Hacker, the Sales Hacker group that I'm a part of, okay. um, has great posts on sales. Um, Coca Sexton is a great guy on social selling, super smart, sort of really leading the charge. Jack, uh, I'm going to butcher his last name, Kosakowski. Um, he's actually a good friend, so I apologize, Jack, if you listen <laughs> to this. Um, but these guys all have great thoughts around what's happening in the sales world today, right? Sure. So just learn that that's the best thing I can do. Don't wait for your managers to give it to you. Right. Don't wait for that kind of stuff. Go find it on your own. Sure. Right? I, I guess it's kind of like you're, you're, you're basically trying to like hustle clients for lack of a better term. So you should be hustling 
like how to be a better salesperson, right? Or or anything, right? It's not even just sales. Like yeah. you should be hustling yeah, in the industry that you're trying to be the expert in. Absolutely, right? Successful. Like if you're if you're a yeah, if you're a coder, you're constantly hacking, right? Like totally. you're constantly learning, you're constantly tweaking, right? Yep. Um I, I do I do I, I would caution against the word hustling. I, I don't okay. think we ever want to hustle a client. Fair. Um you know, like, and I think it, it's one of the things I talk about early. And again, it's, it's part of this respect contract, right? Again, and I know I'm harping on this, but I try to set it up that, look, I'm not trying to hustle you. In okay. fact, I'm trying to help you. And if I can't, I'll help you. That Got doesn't you. mean you shouldn't hustle. It doesn't mean, you know, I hustle all the time. Like I am constantly reading different books, constantly figuring stuff out, constantly um, um, trying to get better at my own craft and stay ahead of the curve. Sure. Right. Like I need to understand things and test things and try things myself. And you've been um, doing this a while. Right. So like it's it's good to hear, though, right, that somebody with tons of experience like yourself is still doing the things that you're telling people to do when they're just new mm-hmm. into the industry. Mm-hmm. Yep. My in fact, my VP of sales at Mashery when I was there told me that, you know, you always need to be learning. You always like I said, even if you think the system is working, break it on purpose for the sake of seeing if you can make it better. Sure. Right. Um, now do that cautiously. Don't, (laughs) don't run around and break the whole world, but you know, um, and I thought that was some solid, solid advice, um, that, you know, you always want to be learning, right? Yeah, no, totally. So I'm kind of curious though, just cause when you say like, we, we kind of covered this a bit earlier, but I, I keep thinking about it just as we keep talking when you're trying new things and like you have something that's working, it's gotta be scary for a lot of people to try something and then fail when they're like, if I would have just sent the other email that worked, you know, then maybe we would have closed that deal. Like I, I get, do you just like, do you have any advice around that? Do you try that on kind of smaller leads or maybe deals that you necessarily don't think you're going to get or, or how do you decide who to try kind of a new tactic on that may or may not work mm-hmm. when you have a tactic that is working? Yeah. So I, I think that's a great question. And again, and, and salespeople, you know, for lack of a better, a better word, salespeople are massively superstitious and extremely paranoid. Sure. Right? Okay. Like we, I don't want to mess this thing up. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so the first thing is a make sure when you're going to test something that you're doing it on a good day. So mentally, if it didn't work, you're okay. Gotcha. Right? Two, remember now in the way you asked the question, it sounded a little bit more like on the sales, the sales, development side where you're trying to reach out and set a first meeting and I'll, I'll answer it on both sides of the fence. Sure. But on the sales development side, you're going to have a cadence anyway, you're going to have 10 or 12 or 15 touches over 30 to 45 days. So if you want to implement a new touch or a new message in the touch, I I don't think that's really going to hurt you. Right. Um, if it does, then you know, to sort of pull it out. Now, the other thing that you do, whenever you're testing a theory, right, it's always an AB test. And now the tools are designed to help you do this stuff, particularly on the email side. You only test it on five people. Okay. And then you do it on five people the regular way. So now you've tested 10, sure. right? So I've actually got a, 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 an email that I need to get out to, to ask people to join my, my blog. And I've got, you know, 1,500 people. And you've got, you know, it's permission-based, right? So you've got to ask people for permission. Sure. Well, I'm going to ha- craft actually three messages. And I'm going to send three messages to 50 different people. So I'm going to test 150 people, and based on the statistics, I'll decide which message I send to the to the other 850. Got you. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's that's the true nature of it. 
on the sales side, it's a little bit different because you've already had a conversation. Um, so what the goal of any sales call is to get to the truth as quickly as possible in a way that is non-threatening, non-intimidating and genuine for both parties. Gotcha. So what I often see sales reps doing is they're, they're cautious. I won't say afraid, but they're often cautious or a little concerned to ask the tough question. Right. So, um, so here, and I'll give one example around authority, right? So oftentimes sales reps, you know, they're afraid to say, well, who else is involved in this decision? Right. Sure. And, and, they, and they can ask that question, which is a really good question, right? It's a great question, right? For me, I try to tell people to, to do it differently. Um, and then I'll give you one more example is um, say, well, who else is affected by this decision? Oh, interesting. Because who else is affected is very different than who else makes the decision or is involved. Makes sense. Right? Yep. Oftentimes, IT is affected by the decision, even though they're not necessarily involved in making the decision. Totally, yep. Right? T- particularly on a SaaS product, right? Sure. So, so it's a different way to ask the question. Another one is really interesting, too, is, um, and I coach this all the time, is um, you know, people say you know, they always get nervous around budget, talking about budget. And I say, you know, try this word. Instead of saying budget, why don't you say commercial terms? Okay. So when someone says to you, hey, you know, how much does it cost? You can respond with, hey, you know what? Commercial terms are. And the reason we say that is because the phrase terms means give and take. Sure. If you talk about cost, it's how much do I have to give you for you to give me that? Right. Which is very personal. Sure. so these are little things that I that we coach on um, around around those around those topics. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. And you, you said you had one more example. The commercial terms one was oh, the example. Okay, yeah, I got you. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay, yeah. no, that's that's great, man. Well, we're kind of coming to the end of the show, so do you want to kind of maybe wrap up with um, mes- mentioning where people can find yourself and uh, the company online? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, it's the world's longest address, and I need to change it. It's theharrisconsultinggroup.com, okay. Richard at theharrisconsultinggroup.com. Uh, I'm also the director of sales training and consulting at Sales Hacker. So you can also find me at richard at saleshacker.com if that's easier to remember. Perfect. Um, and uh, I can throw out a, a, a phone number if someone wants to dial me direct or text me, feel free. Sure. Um, 415 five nine six nine one four nine four one five five nine six nine one four nine and i'll i'll stop the shameless plugs there no no it's good man well i thanks again for doing this i really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to be on the show and i look forward to keeping in touch with you and you know who knows where the future is gonna hold right Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you you asking me to do it. It's, I've really enjoyed this conversation. So uh, best of luck to you and your show and everything you've got going on, too. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk soon. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. And keep them in the future.